There were several audio disruptions due to the intermittent failure of our wireless microphone transmitter. This item is being repaired. We appreciate your understanding. Good evening, everyone. We're doing class number 30 of Conversations with Yogananda, <laughs> and it's all going to work out just fine, isn't it? I think it's going to be just fine. <laughs> number 113. The Master was speaking about someone to whom he had given divine love. That person later turned against him and, in consequence, suffered greatly. When you give someone divine love, he commented, and he goes against it. He crucifies himself. I never heard Swamiji say to whom Master was referring in that. The, there were several very impressive characters in his life, most notably Swami Dirananda, who was the man that had been Master's boyhood friend that he brought over from India to help him when he came to America. And he put him in charge of Mount Washington when Master was traveling around the country. Apparently he was a very charismatic and very attractive, uh, very magnetic person. And uh, in the end, he took all the money, turned against Master, sued Master, and won, actually, won money from him. I believe it was after that that Yogananda went to Mexico and said he wasn't sure whether he was going to come back. Also, that same man, you may have heard Swami say this, in Autobiography of a Yogi, when it says that Sri Yukteswar was um, not in favor of something that Yogananda was doing, he was trying to bring that very man onto the spiritual path. And Sri Yukteswar was trying to protect him from the karma of it. But Swamiji said um, much later that when he had been in India in like uh, 1950 eight to 62, one of Yogananda's boyhood friends said to him that when Master was just a young man, he said um, about this, who became Dirananda, someday he will betray me and marry a white woman. That's what he said. But interestingly, apparently when it happened, Master acted as if it was a total, like where did this come from? And one of the reasons, uh, they became very impoverished at Mount Washington Swami tells the story about they were so poor that they were planting tomatoes on the hillside in order to be able to live is because Master had been teaching for years and years and sending all the money back and then Dirananda took it. I mean, just amazing things that happen. How, you, you have the loyalty and love of the Master from childhood and yet that's how you resolve it. And he was also the one to whom Master sent the box of mangoes every year that he refused to open and sent back. Just very, very strange, uh, convoluted karma. And then you have Brahmachari Narod was his name, and he also married, uh, the, I, I love this phrase, I mean, this is, was just so fun to me. The first time I heard, I was in India, and I heard an Indian man refer to a, a white man. There's a white man in charge, is what he said. And I thought, a white man? I said, oh, you mean like someone like me? <laughs> yeah, someone like you. And then he used the phrase, you know, so-and-so married a white woman. It just depends on which side of it you're on, you know, what it looks like to you, of course. But it, it never crossed my mind because I live in a country where we're all this way. But in any case, um, in the marriage ceremony that we have on film, you know that film? 
um, that was that was in a road, and he was marrying that woman, who later poisoned his mind against Master. And uh, Swami never doesn't like that film at all because he knows what the context was, and that Master knew that this was spiritually a disaster for him. And he sort of says he was emphatically sort of trying to hold them to a spiritual ideal when he was conducting that ceremony, trying to just with so much power get them to take these vows and hold to them even though he knew what was going to happen and I believe Brahmachari Narod also sued him but Master by that point had figured it out and so he had protected himself in such a way that he didn't get anything from him but here you are you know in America doing this work and you just don't know what happens but then he says something like that and you know it's the, the relevance of this for us is, is, is not quite as, it doesn't have to be as bone-chilling as what's written there. But what we have to understand is when you have a spiritual opportunity, it's not like you can just say, oh, I don't feel like it now. I'll pick it up later. And, and that's the part that's really relevant. Ananda Moyama described it as when the, when the tide is coming in, you have to come in with the tide. Or when, or when you want to ride the tide out, if you want to put it that way. But there's a season for things. But another complete way to look about it, think about it and look at it is, I think it's the law of prosperity and the law of gratitude. If some, if some opportunity comes to you and you just casually say, oh, I'd rather go to the movies, you know, the NBA finals are on, or, you know, I think I just feel like living in Hawaii for a while. And, you know, there's lots of spiritual teachers. I'll just, someone told me once when his, his, uh, a marriage broke up, he basically said many years later, you know, it was, that marriage, there had been so many good things, I just thought it would be easy to get another one. You know, just being very casual about it, not realizing that these things come and you really, you, you can't just keep throwing them away and then just thinking that the coffers will be filled again and again. Master, of course, is talking on a much higher level, but you really have to pay attention and... and mm, make use of what you have. That was, in our very, very early, very poorest days of Ananda village, I, I remember the only principle of prosperity that I had really clear in my mind was you must make total use of what you have. You can't just use what you lack as an excuse for not doing the best that you can. Um, I was reading in the, in the village minutes of Ananda village in like, the early 70s and the garden was asking us to save the plastic fasteners on our, our commercial bread and the twist ties from any package we got to save them and turn them into the garden so they could reuse them for the vegetables and I thought to myself oh my word you know I mean we were we were that we was like the depression we were that poor that if we needed to collect and reuse the twist ties because even that much was more than we could easily afford. I never felt even the slightest sense of deprivation in the situation ever because we were so wealthy in everything that really mattered, friendship and inspiration and service and so on, but in material goods we were pretty down toward the bottom. But uh, I was also remembering uh, who was that? Durga and I were talking about this what is now the expanding light originally was called the World Brotherhood Retreat 
and it was constructed, it was actually opened, I, I know all these facts, on first Sunday service we had, there was August 17th, 1980, and uh, only the dining room was usable, we had the service in the dining room, we fit, finished the rest of it within a few months, but the kitchen didn't open a Durgis's for four years, but we used to serve lunch every day, so we would cook it at the meditation retreat, load it in the back of a pickup truck, d- drive it down those roads, and then just unload it, serve it, pile all the dirty dishes back into the truck, and then just drive it up. That was when Davy quoted Daffy Duck. I'd never heard Daffy Duck quoted before, but she quoted Daffy Duck when we were in the back of the truck, and you had to lay sleeping bags over everything because in the summer there was so much dust, yeah, dust and dirt, so you just had to insulate the whole thing with you sleeping bags, as I recall. And she said... I'm so silly, I don't know this is impossible. <laughs> and that sort of became our motto for Ananda, that we were so silly we didn't know it was impossible, so we just did it. Just like, why not? And did it with great good spirit and never felt deprived. This is what we had, this is what we did. Just as simple as that. Um, and this is a much higher octave of that. But when a great master gives you a gift... You can't just say, no, thank you, or worse than that, I don't want it, because that sets in motion a dissonance that, well, he uses the word crucifies you, which is, whoa, scary, very scary. But suffering is how we learn. I often, uh, not often, but I have contemplated, you know, the whole story of Judas, which of course is a very scary story, and how after Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and you know did not resist the soldiers as what Judas in Judas's mind he was going to provoke Jesus to express his full divine power and he never anticipated that Jesus would allow himself to be taken or at least that's how master explained it it wasn't you know he wasn't really he wasn't so far gone that he was trying to destroy his master he was just competing with Jesus about the best way to do things. And he was trying to force Jesus to express his power so that they could get things happening because Judas was, was worldly and he wanted a worldly expression of power. So when Jesus actually instead just refused, even now legions of angels could rescue me, but it is not my father's will, Judas just assumed So when he was actually taken, imprisoned, tortured, and crucified, or when Jesus, Judas saw that coming, he went out and hung himself. And just, oh, just the nightmare of it is so intense. And then Master says, you know, he was Ramakrishna's disciple, sent to Ramakrishna, and in the beginning part of the 1900s, that's where he lived and um, became liberated. Now just think of everything that must have happened in between from our perspective in terms of all of the things he had to unravel. Although Master and Swami have often said, if you're very advanced, you can also turn it quickly. Unless you really, uh, how did he, a slip is not a fall. No matter how serious the slip, it only becomes a fall if you don't get up. So you don't know what Jesus did in be- Judas did in between. I also think of 
the stories that Swamiji tells about arguing with his guru and advancing to a higher point and then losing it. And I know I've said this in here, but Swami always tells those stories so lightly. You know, he, his eyes don't fill up with tears. His, you, don't, you don't see his heart break. You don't, I realize that when I hear Swami tell those stories, I don't have an anguishing sense about it. But when you step back from it and really think about how many days and nights of remorse and um, resolution and pulling himself back up again, there had to have been. And, and the moment of realization when you suddenly see what you've actually done, like Judas faced in that moment. And, but now it's like, it's just the past. I, the first time in the life of Henry I, in the history of, of the life of Henry I, there's an ex- extremely dramatic incident called the White Ship Disaster. And they would often go on the ship back and forth between France and England, and there were some treacherous rocks. And when they were coming from France, going back to England, um, Henry and all his court was there, and because of the times they lived in, all of their uh, children, their sons, were all sort of part of it. The, the sons were being trained to take their father's places, and Henry's uh, single legitimate son, whom he had had everyone pledge their loyalty to, his appointed successor, he was there. And all the young people got on one boat, and all their parents got on the other boat and the young people started drinking and started giving the wine to the crew and the crew became inebriated and they plowed into a rock and the entire ship went down and only one person lived so the whole generation including Henry's uh, heir carefully cultivated heir all died and the other ship arrives and so it wasn't merely Henry, it was all his people, all of their progeny were wiped out in the white ship disaster. And I'd heard reference to the white ship disaster, but I didn't really know what it was. And I was reading this history book. I just, tears ran down my face. I was so, I don't know whether I was the drunk captain or one of the people who drowned or somebody who lost their child. I don't know what part I played in it, but I felt it. I experienced it. And I felt so uh, sad for Henry that I wrote Swami a, a note of condolence. <laughs> I really did. I said, sir, I just read this and it's so heartbreaking. I can hardly stand it. And he, he so sweetly wrote back and he said, I very much appreciate you know, your, your feelings about this. But you see, Asha, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but it was, it was uh, interesting to me that he really could just say, it was a long time ago. And in contrast to that, speaking for myself, you know, I've become conscious of the fact that things that were a long time ago are not a long time ago as far as my chakras are concerned. And just what a huge difference that is. Not to, not to keep carrying it. That's called baggage. That's really the biggest kind of baggage. That 300 years ago I suffered a heartbreak and so I'm always a little sad now. And you don't even know why unless somebody comes in with the same vibration or the same essential sequence and all of a sudden your response is not in proportion 
although it feels perfectly in proportion to you. So when people tell you that you're overreacting, you don't, you don't think you're overreacting. You just, you're just responding to what's happening, but you don't realize that you're conditioned by things that happened a long time ago that, that you never actually finished. This is why Kriya is so helpful and realization takes so long. And that's, I began to really appreciate what Swami was saying, um, how, easy, how easily he talked about it. I, I really began to appreciate what that must mean when it really has no ripple through you. I was uh, reading something that Swami wrote just today. Uh, he wrote it in 1984, but I was reading it today. He was talking about something that had happened, and he said, Even now I don't understand it, but I don't need to understand it because it's all been resolved on a higher level, is how he put it. And, and that's what I, I could sort of see. That's how you actually get the freedom from it. It's not like you talk yourself into it. Well, after all, it happened for the best. Death comes to everyone and see how it all worked out. It had to work out this way. None of that. Because if you're doing that, you're just moving the pieces around and you're trying to make this world, put this world in order. It wasn't at all what he was saying. What he was saying is it was resolved on a level where it's, it wasn't, I wasn't doing it anymore. It just, it, it wasn't about me. So there, it's, there's, no, there's no post of ego to which the event can be tied to. And it doesn't necessarily mean your ego is dissolved completely, although in Swami's case it did. But it just means that I no longer feel the necessity to define myself by this experience, which is a nice place to be. Because all of us have been crucified by our stupidity, I'm sure. I don't know if we've merited true divine love from a great master before and thrown it away. Let's hope that we haven't. But we've all squandered our opportunities and have had to work ourselves up from the ground again, you know, over and over. But since there's no thing as, such thing as time, and it's always the eternal now, it doesn't make any difference, does it? Anybody want to protest before we go on? <laughs> it's, uh, the, because our microphone isn't working tonight, it's, uh, Tom said it's, it seems like it's normal for that to happen. Yes, it is. And I think that's why Swami told us those stories. You know, that's why he was just so open about those stories. He would t you know, tell us what the book of Brigu said in the Agastya book, both positive and negative. Oh, they say I'm going to be free. Master says this is my, you know, we'll all pass away. And Agastya said I was this and I was that. But there's no post of ego tied to it either way. Yeah, that's called Shanti in the Vrittis. It's a very high state. There's just peace in your Vrittis. There's nothing, it all just passes through. I've heard Swami say these things for decades and just recently, it's like a hair's width of actual comprehension has begun to come into me. I could say it, but I just like, wow, you, you really don't identify and define yourself by those experiences. What a novel idea. I mean, what freedom. Think about it. Think about all of us. Well, maybe I'm just talking for myself, but whoa, I know I'm just, there's so many dents in my heart. And so you know, the, the, you get those little puddles and the malarial mosquitoes breed in them. You know, it's just like there's just these dents there. But if they weren't, then everything would just roll right off. 
but now it sinks. Uh, you just persevere, and eventually... And yes, it seems to happen to everyone, doesn't it? There you have it. It's the way we learn. But I realize a lot of times these difficult... I mean, it's been occurring to me that difficulty things happen, major failings happen, everything happens. But just, to, just so that we'll stop identifying. That, that the capacity to stop identifying with what happens to us is the point. Because then it's resolved on a higher level. I, you know, I've always, I keep thinking the point is to understand it, figure it out, repent, change, make restitution, whatever it might be. But Swami's phrase, you just settle on a higher level and then you don't ever have to understand it. And that higher level is, I'm a child of God and I always have been. I've had this picture I wrote to, uh, I wrote this to, J- to Jairam in prison. Uh, I, just this picture, I said, it's like um, I, uh, little, the way little children who are, who are ambulatory but still small enough to crawl into their mother's lap, they'll go out and they'll do things for a while and then it, you know, it may not work out or they just get tired or they need to come back and they just come back and they crawl back onto the mother's lap and they'll kind of you know, snuggle up and sometimes they'll suck their thumbs for a while and then something will interest them and then they'll shoot off again and they'll just get engaged. That's what we're doing incarnation after incarnation, isn't it? We just kind of are just in, in Divine Mother's lap or Swami's lap or Master's lap. We're just sitting there. He's got his arms around us. Everything is just fine and we're just so nurtured. And then, oh, there's something out there to do. And then we just rush off and just play and break things and get messy and get confused and then we've just had enough and we just come back. But that, um, just the sort of impersonalness of that and the lack of importance about what we're doing when we're not sitting on Divine Mother's lap, just like a a two-year-old or a four-year-old just splashes and plays and makes a mess of things and does this and that and what difference does it make? Your mother doesn't really care. He just, she just cleans you up and holds you for a while until you've recovered. And then you go off again. That's, I, that's a higher level of it. And whatever happens out there, it's just what has to happen. It's, that's very hard. Identifying with it makes you think differently. Hmm. Okay. Number 114. I met an 80-year-old woman in Seattle, Master told me, who had been an atheist all her life. She was completely changed by our meeting. Thereafter, she would listen all the time to a recording of my voice. She kept orange flowers on her altar as a reminder of our meeting. In the few years that were left to her, she attained salvation. Impressive. So you see, the Master concluded, it isn't only a matter of when you come onto the path. Above all, it is a question of how much energy you devote once you actually set foot onto it. As Jesus said, the last, whether coming last in time as disciples or continuing to the last of their lives, shall be first. And many that came first or early shall be last. I was, this is a, unrelated to the context here. One of the things that Swami specifically mentioned about when he writes about Master, he, 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 he says this. He says one of the reasons why he 
felt he, he really needed to write and also edit the unpublished writings that we've subsequently published is because he can hear Master's voice in his mind. And it's not, he can hear the tone of voice. He also hears the manner of speaking. And he's able to make it sound as Master said it. And I, with all, well, with not a lot of respect, but he, he points out that a lot of the times when SRF edits Master's words, and especially he points out Tara, especially in the book Master Said and others, um, he said, they just don't, they don't make it sound like him. Swamiji said himself, he can't read any of the SRF books. He can't read Man's Eternal Quest or any of them. He said, because it's not Master's voice. It might be Master's ideas, but it's not his voice. And, and Swami talked about, I was reading this and about writing. He talked about um, rhythm is vibration. And so the rhythm of the speech is a large part of how you pick up the vibration. And so when you're reading the written word, if the rhythm of it is not the way it was spoken, then the vibration of it is different. It gets very subtle. But of course, he was extremely subtle in his writing. And all through this book, look how conversational he is. I met an 80-year-old woman in Seattle. You know, just, I, I was, when I, you know, if, now if you're writing, you would say, on one of my recent trips to Seattle, a place I often visited in order to give conferences, in one of my classes, I encountered a woman of elder years. He says, I met an 80-year-old woman in Seattle. Just straight, like that. You also realize he doesn't use a lot of, he doesn't use convoluted sentence structure, and he doesn't use large words. And he, he's also um, exceedingly friendly. Even when he says something harsh, when you give someone divine love and he goes against it, he crucifies himself. Just straightforward. It's not, it's not a pretty statement, but he just says it. Um, I'm, that's why I personally have a huge preference for, the, for Swami's writings of Master. And if you really, if you really compare it, also um, uh, because a lot of the edited talks of Master uh, were not taken from recordings, but were taken from notes... And when you take notes, you write down the essential ideas. So when they, when they would then transcribe them, they would just put the essential ideas. And so they often end up being declarative. You know, just declarative, 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 one after another. Whereas Master was encouraging. When, when the SRF, or when Ananda actually first finally put out a recording of Master's voice other than... Uh, poems and chants, you know, and the, there's, there's different ones of Master, and the only ones we had for many years, now it's different, were the ones where he was just booming out, you know, changing the universe with his voice, and then we got a recording that I, was probably the first one that was given to Swami in Europe that we put out, which subsequently SRF started putting them out, and Master was just sitting around, you know, it's so lovely having a birthday, you're all so sweet to me. It's just such a joy being here. And Swami said at that time, he said, that's how he was. He said, yes, he spoke in that voice sometimes in the temples. He said, but this is how Master was with me. And remember the story of him sitting at the table after lunch, flipping the fork? I mean, just picture the whole scene. They're just sitting there. There's been a guest. 
Swami's cleaned up the dishes. Master's just sitting at the table where they've all been eating. And he's just flipping a fork like this, trying to get it into the glass. And Swamiji's just sitting there watching him. And it's all very um, natural. And it's ex- exceedingly important for us to perceive Master as natural. Because if he's natural, then we can be natural. And if he's scary, then we're scary. If he's formal, then we don't know how to behave. If he's convoluted, we don't know how to understand his teaching. If he only lays down the law, what do we do when we goof up? You see how hard it all gets? So all of this is exceedingly important, the way he does it. Now, quite apart from that, that's a lovely story, isn't it? It's really encouraging when you think of an atheist all your life and then suddenly the door opens. I also love to think about what that must have meant to her and what a flexible mind she had that after standing in one position her whole life when she actually saw an alternative to it she just understood what she had and took it in exact contrast to number 113. She just saw what she had and just seized it. Of course, a chronological age is completely arbitrary and it is also a, a, a guideline to us as, our, as the years progress, those of us who are more chronologically developed than some of you. Um, it, it just, it doesn't really matter if your mind is flexible. I, I recall sitting with a couple at a, a lunch table, a married couple, and he had atrophied somewhat and she hadn't. It was as simple as that. And they were both about 80 probably at that point. And it was so uh, interesting to me to watch. I myself was in my 20s. So, you know, they were unutterably ancient as far as I was concerned. They were actually probably the age I am now, now that I think about it. Yeah, that would be more true. Uh, 75 maybe. And uh, uh, do you remember that little Reader's Digest one where the little girl meets a woman in her 90s? How old are you? The lady said 90. The little girl said did you start at one? <laughs> we, we take things for granted that are not obvious. <laughs> but they were sitting there, and it was so interesting to me because they were, I was uh, only one of several people of my generation at their table. And the woman was completely in the present reality. And we were just conversing in, in, in real time about various things. And the man kept waiting for an opening to take the energy back into the world he was familiar with so he could speak about things that had hap- already happened to him in the world he already knew. And then the conversation would come back into real time. And then it wasn't that he was demented or even unpleasant, but he, he, couldn't, he couldn't come into another reality. He was, he was stuck in the pattern that he knew and he just couldn't come. And they were, they were many, you know, happily well married to each other, but he just made that little detour. You know, I watch it. This sounds absolutely ludicrous at this time, but when I first moved here from Ananda Village, which was 1987, and I, I think it was right at the very beginning, certainly within the first year, I discovered the Palo Alto Library and I had gone to the Grass Valley Library in Nevada City on a regular basis. Having no money, you use the library, of course. And uh, I went into the Palo Alto Library and there was no card catalog. 
you know, my, my childhood was very much involved with libraries, and I loved the card catalog, the oak, the oak drawers with the little brass things that fit your finger, and you could pull them out, and you could look through the little cards. I loved it. So I was like, when I moved here, I was like 34, 35. I moved here, there was, no, it was 40. There were no, um, there was no card catalog. There were just computers. I had a computer, I think, at that, yeah, I had a computer at that point, but you know, that was all real new. And I just didn't know how to do it. I'd never dealt with it before. And I was edgy anyway, being in this environment as opposed to the one I'd been in for so long. And I actually started to cry because I just felt like I, the, the library was lost to me. And I remember coming out of the library and finding a little nook, just kind of leaning against the... I just... Good God, Asha. I feel like saying to myself, Don't, you better be careful or God's going to send you a real test. But in any case, I stood there and I felt just totally bereft because I couldn't use the library. I'm standing there like this. But it was actually, it was very interesting because I suddenly thought that this is actually a very important moment because either you rise to meet what's happening or from this point on, you just become older and older. And I was only 40 at that point. And so what I did was, I thought, children of six know how to do this. <laughs> and I actually pretended I was a child of six. And I walked back in there like a child of six and just looked at the thing and tried to just, I guess the word would be intuit, or just draw the obvious, not to think so hard, just what would I do? And of course, I figured it out in about a minute. It was nothing. But it was, a real, it was a real opportunity. You either retreat back into what's familiar to you and hide from the change, whatever the change is, or you decide, of course I can do this. Very, very, extremely important. So here's this woman, she's 80. I've always been an atheist. Then she meets a real man of God. And I'm sure what she realized... She wasn't really an atheist. She just had never understood what God really was, which is, that, that position has integrity, which is probably also why she was able to change, because she, she probably clearly was a woman of willpower and of, of strong mind. She had a position, but once it was demolished, she just was happy to let it be demolished. And then can you imagine the jubilation she must have felt? You know, just the extraordinary uh, and all that power that comes, um, that can come with older years because you have nothing at stake anymore. It's all done. You know, it's just, you're at the last quadrant. No, you're not responsible for anything but yourself. It's all finished for better or for worse. It's just over and you just do what you need to do. It's so there's many, many levels that's terrific on that. Any comments or thoughts? We started a little late, but uh, why don't we just still take a few minutes break and then we'll come back and finish. Um, there's another factor about uh, this 80-year-old woman that I think is really interesting. Um, which is for us to sincerely appreciate that spiritual practice is not automatic. It's not magic. Too often, I think, or sometimes I think, we begin to think I mean, that that's institutional religion. If I just follow the form and do what I'm supposed to do and get the priest to do this and say these prayers and all of that, then there will be this automatic benefit. 
but there really isn't. <laughs> There's only a benefit. It's, it's an exact energy exchange. As much energy as you put into it, that's exactly what comes back. And this is, again, where her story is so interesting because she put a lifetime worth of effort into the few years that she had left or a total effort into the few years that she had left, and therefore she transformed her consciousness, which means that at any point we can do that if we simply understand uh, that it's metaphysics, it's an energy exchange. It's not, you're not propitiating someone, you're not bargaining, you're not uh, lucky, anything like that. It's just, if you put out the energy, you get the result. Which is why my answer to the question so often about how do you succeed on the spiritual path is don't quit. Just keep persevering with, with, not, with not casual intention. And don't just put in your hours, but really put in your life. And pay attention, and even if it doesn't always work out well. Somebody reminded me recently of James Collar, who Master talks, who Swami talks about in The Path. James Collar had the commotion karma, was the way he was described. And, and Master had him even not live at Mount Washington for various reasons. He just didn't fit in at Mount Washington. And he was chaotic and sort of a mess. And Master said, but Divine Mother tells me he'll be freed in this lifetime. And then Master himself said, I don't know how, but Divine Mother says so. <laughs> Which is just, it's just, again, speaking of how, how Swami writes about Master. I mean, just, you can see how completely natural that was. Because I'm sure Swamiji just looked at it and thought, really? How could that happen? Master said, I don't know how, but Master... Divine Mother tells me. It's all so joyous also. There's such a, a, a tiny bubble of laughter in that comment that Master's not all the time solemn. He sees the funny part of it too. And the other story that Swami tells about the man who had cerebral palsy. You know, the word at that time was spastic, which is not a word that people use that much anymore, but that's what it was. And he couldn't talk and he couldn't move in a normal way. And Master said, you know, Divine Mother's very pleased with him and I don't know I can't remember now where they said he'd be freed but he'd certainly Divine Mother is pleased with his devotion and then Swami not knowing what to make of it said it must be a very simple kind of devotion of course that was not fully comprehending the nature of cerebral palsy that he could have had a completely very sophisticated inner life but no capacity to express it but it was less known at that time if you see a person who can't move and can't speak you might draw natural conclusions if they don't have iPods where they can poke at things, um, or pads. Um, but uh, when Swami said it must be a very simple kind of devotion, Master, his face lit up. Ah, oh, yes, he said, that's what pleases Divine Mother the most. Very important points. Because also, again, here's this woman who's 80. What could she do, really? You know, she couldn't change the world. She couldn't make great things happen but she just decided that her consciousness was going to be different. And so we, we always have to renew our um, faith, both in ourselves and in the spiritual path. And even if we wander for a long time, what difference does it make? When you come back, you come back. There's a few people who live in Ananda village now who wandered off for quite some years. A couple of men. They wandered off for really quite a long time. But then when it was all done, they came back. And they're elderly and a bit um, hard-used. 
but they're back. God doesn't care. That story in autobiography of a yogi, which is very small, really. I mean, but Master going off to the Himalayas and then just coming back. And Master responded to his Master Sri Yukteswar as if uh, hours, not days, actually, Swamiji said it was actually months, he was gone for quite a long time, had, had elapsed. It's just like, well, you were gone and now you're back. And you just think of that even for incarnations, thinking about dear Ananda that I was talking about. Okay, so you're gone and now you're back. And even though Master suffered in, a, in the way of having assumed an incarnation and having to live through it, he didn't hold any of that. So that as soon as he came back, I mean, Master's suffering was for his sake, above all. And as soon as he came back, it's all over. What is the point? I'm just... That's, what, that's how Sri Yukteswar said it to Master. You know, I'm not here for myself. I'm only here for you. Nothing, of, nothing that had to do with me was disappointed. It was entirely your doing. And now that it's over, it's over. We'll simply pick up from here. Uh, these are extremely, extremely important understandings to um, absorb as deeply into our, our soul's essence as we possibly can because we will need these. And we will either need them in a terrible mistake that you make in the morning and you have to get over it by the afternoon or a terrible m- mistake you make in an incarnation and you're going to have to live it out for a really long time. But the time it takes to live it out is uh, entirely determined by us. I, I, uh, Ramurti said something at Sunday service yesterday which... I, he didn't. He didn't elaborate, and I was very intrigued about it. So I, I thought about it afterwards. He 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 said. He was talking about he was talking about the eternal now, but this wasn't exactly related to that. A little bit. He was saying, uh, you know, when something difficult happens to a great soul like Swamiji, and I've many times in this said how much I'm trying to understand what his actual experience of life was not just what I thought it was, but what it was for him. And he talked about you can't numb your... This is what Ramurti was saying. When sorrow comes, you can't numb it. You can't numb yourself to it. You can't just suppress it. And what he, the phrase he used was, you have to take it in completely, but then lift it up. Which said it was an extremely interesting image. I, I, I'd, never, I'd never remember hearing it before, just in exactly that way. And then when I read about Swami saying, I never understood it, but it was resolved on a higher level. But if you've numbed yourself to it, that means that some part of you is afraid to experience it. And when I've I've asked Swami at other times about karma, he says, anything you're afraid of is karma that you have yet to face. Which is a really interesting thing to think about. I tend to think about it in terms of physical pain. And that came in connection in my mind with Swami constantly telling us about all his horrible dental procedures that he would go through without any um, numbing drugs. And I just would just... You could hardly, I can hardly think about it. But anything you're afraid of is unresolved karma. I don't like to think that means that torture is in my future. But in a real sense, even though that's a terrifying thought... 
Anything you're afraid of is unresolved karma because if you fear it, some part of you is dividing the world up into what I like and what I don't like. So if you can't take a grief completely into you without resistance, then some part of you is still afraid of it. So you have to take it in completely. But you can't take it in completely and be decimated by it. Or what I was talking about earlier, just have it be these poor dents in your in your heart system that keep filling up and superating or whatever it is that they would do, breeding malarial mosquitoes. It's just terrible. But So you have to bring it in completely and then raise it up and let it go into the spiritual eye. Easy to say, but not so easy to do. But what choice do we have? Because nothing else really works. Everything else just, and this is where the eternal now comes in, everything else just <laughs> uh, sets you up with the debt. This is in, uh, in Kamala Silva's writing about her discipleship to Master and Erica's therefore presentation of Kamala. We always said she wanted to, it, when we always used to talk about that many years ago, she prayed to have all her karma come to her. But what she actually prayed for is to pay all her karmic debts. And that's how it was expressed in her own words, which I thought was a much more interesting way to say it. In other words, whatever's out of balance, whatever I, I still owe, you know, I would like to, I'd like to pay it all off. And then that's sort of an interesting way to say it because that means what I was afraid of, what I didn't face, what was there to be settled. It was an account, an unsettled account. And now I want to balance all my accounts. I don't want to have any. Um, and I have to be able to take it all in completely. But then I have to be able to raise it up, whatever it might be. Is it, somehow these are, uh, these are interesting ideas to me. I hope they... Or to you also. Yes, Nishikama. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, I know for the sake of the recording, the whole story wasn't on there, but it was just a, a personal recitation of how the, the, you develop a cumulative sense of urgency. You just realize at a certain point that there's no, there's no way out except through it. You don't, you want, you don't want, you even want to look in that direction. No, you just, there's no way out, but th- where, will I, where would I go? See, this is the extraordinary answer that Peter gave to Jesus at the end of the life there. And that's why it's so powerful. One of my favorites. When uh, Jesus was essentially challenging his disciples, eat my body, drink my blood, and uh, just really challenging his disciples, Master said at the end of a master's life, he needs to purge it a little bit. I mean, if you really think about Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. He knew all these people were going to be persecuted he needed a, a very tight, solid group he could depend on. I mean, think about it. If, if half the people in the group were not strong, what, what chaos would ensue? I mean, at, when, when all of that came down, they had to just stand together and be able to move forward or else it couldn't, it couldn't go apart with internal weakness. So he just started driving the weaker ones away, not driving them away from their discipleship or driving them away from his love. But in this incarnation, you need to move back a little bit. So a lot of people started, he started making it hard. So for most of the time Swami was there, that's what Master was doing also. Swamiji said he really became very tough at the end of his life. He tells that story, which is just a tiny vignette, but it's very interesting when it was Shraddha Ma who, um, Shraddha Ma to at SRF when she just 
was standing in the hallway saying, nothing I do pleases him. And he said, Master was just being really... Swami became a lot tougher at the end. Um, I was just talking to someone about that today. Not, not really, I think, in the same way for the same reason exactly. And not in the same way. But Swami himself said, um, you know, years ago, I could wait a decade to make a correction, he said, but now I don't have that much time. So now I have to, I have to say it now and I have to say it all right now. I can't just dole it out in little spoonfuls for you. He said that, I think, to Lakshman, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> but when Peter, when Jesus said to Peter, will you also leave me? Because everybody else was going. It was a very natural question. I mean, who knows who had just left at that point? Because sometimes people who appear to be quite central have a karmic test and then they're gone. So he said to Peter, will you also leave me? And he, Peter said, where would I go? I mean, once, you, once that is your answer, where would I go? That's a, that's a wholly different answer even than I believe in you. It's just like there's no, there's no place to put the question. Because everywhere, every, all of reality is my discipleship and all of reality is this. There's no excuse. There's no escape. There's no postponement. There's no alternative. Where would I go? Where could I possibly go where it would, I could do something other than this and have it bring me anything I wanted? That's a, just once you, once you really hit that point within yourself and it's a point to be very deeply cultivated, and the answer has nothing to do with, I'm enjoying myself, I love this, I feel so much better, I get so much benefit. Nothing. I mean, it's just nothing. None of those answers. The, I mean, maybe you are enjoying yourself and maybe you do feel inspired, but where could I go? It's, there's just no place. My own spiritual life really began with that thought, not, not in the sense I'm saying it now, but not dissimilar. When I remember... I think contemplating death, which I, I don't remember thinking about death all that much, but I remember thinking about death, that one moment, that metaphysical moment of just realizing that in the, in the end, there would be a moment when I would die.